1940, the southern deserts of Peru. A lone aeroplane hums as it flies over the long, flat plains. These deserts aren't so much majestic, rolling sand dunes as they are hundreds and hundreds of miles of dry, flat soil. But the pilot still considers it beautiful. After all, he's come a long way to be here and make this flight, and other flights like it. Paul Cossack is an American historian who's travelled from Long Island to Peru to study what he believes to be ancient agricultural systems. The earlier people of southern Peru aren't nearly as well known as the Inca Empire who came later, so he's out here trying to shed light on what their culture might have been like. To that end, he's been hearing that out in this desert are miles of ditches or earthworks or something dug for some purpose, ostensibly by the people who used to live there. He's excited to learn. These lines were first reported hundreds of years ago, but nobody knows what they are, not at the time. Peruvian civilian and military flights have confirmed their being there, but shed no light on their purpose. Roads? Ancient irrigation ditches? Whatever they are, Cossack aims to find out. He checks his equipment in his notes, and he looks down upon the vast expanse of the desert, he sees what he's looking for. Miles and miles of lines in the desert, dug, carved and built for some purpose. It's a strange sensation for him. He's not entirely new to flying, and the technology is still fairly impressive. It's only been 30-something years since the first manned flight of the Wright brothers. He thinks for himself that he's like a bird up here, a true bird's-eye view. A moment of silence as the gears turn in his head, the whir of the propeller and the rushing wind the only noise, as he banks his plane to get a better look at the lines. And then it hits him. It's a bird. This particular arrangement of lines isn't random, and it's certainly not any kind of agricultural ditch. These lines, dug over hundreds of miles, resemble a huge variety of different shapes. This particular one, around half a mile long, is a bird. A giant hummingbird dug into the desert soil of southern Peru. It changes everything. With the help of a German mathematician, Maria Reich, the pair then mapped every shape they could find. Reich also offered her unique mathematical abilities to calculate those who built these shapes and how they scaled them up from smaller drawings. They worked together for more than nine years until Cossack had to return to the United States. But Reich spent the rest of her life in Peru, working to uncover as much as she could about these mysterious shapes. Her life's work got UNESCO to recognize them as a World Heritage Site in 1994, four years before she herself passed away. And, rather fittingly, there's now an airport named after her, and she'd be known as the Lady of the Lines in Peru to this very day. I'd like to take a second to acknowledge the importance of both figures in the story. Cossack was the first to recognise that the lines were representations of things by seeing them from the air and noticing the patterns, but Reich was instrumental in the study and preservation of the lines, spending her life getting them noticed and examined. Regardless, a mystery was now born. The mystery of the Nazca Lines. Who made them? And why? Hello and welcome to Demystified with me, Ashley Styles. Today we're looking at the Nazca Lines, what they are, who might have built them, and the various theories surrounding them. To start with, I'd like to try and impress upon you just how big the Nazca Lines are, because they're, like, really, really big. 
Each individual geoglyph is between 0.4 and 1.1 kilometers across. That's 0.2 and 0.7 miles. Take the median of around half a mile. It'd take you on average 10 minutes to walk end to end of any one of the geoglyphs, and the total length of the combined geoglyphs is over 1,300 kilometers, about the distance from Wyoming to the Pacific coast, if you laid them end to end. So they're big, and there's lots of them. They are visible from the surrounding foothills and mountains in the area. It just never really occurred to anyone, at least anybody outside of those who made them, that they might be in the form of shapes, since they're so ridiculously big. If you're standing on top of them, you can see the discoloration that denotes the lines, but overall they're best seen from the air, the bird's eye view we talked about. The actual range of figures is astounding too. Now, they do need to be taken with a pinch of salt because some are very highly stylized, but others are very clearly recognisable. I'd encourage you to look them up and see the shapes for yourself. At the top of the list we've got several birds, a hummingbird, a pelican, a condor, and a heron at least, a monkey, several depictions of people, a whale, a dog, a spider, a flower, and a massive array of geometric and polymorphic shapes that aren't anything in particular. But as I said, some of them are remarkably well done. The monkey, for instance, if you know that you're looking at a depiction of a monkey, it's absolutely unambiguously a monkey, which is impressive given that it covers an area of about several football fields in total. Now, with that impressed upon you, let's get down to the history of the Nazca Lines as far as we know it. So, the lines were made between 500 BC and 580. Now, I know your initial instinct would be, well, that's a gap of about a thousand years, and it's not great as far as specific timelines go. For contrast, 500 BC was before Alexander the Great, and 500 AD was after the fall of Western Rome. So it's a pretty sizable chunk of time we're missing here. That having been said, though, we can narrow it down a little bit when we look at the peaks and troughs of the Nazca civilization. Who were the Nazca? They were a civilization that dwelt in the desert areas of southern Peru, heavily influenced by a precursor civilization called the Paracas, who were, in particular, masters of irrigation and water management, that being very important for desert-dwelling civilizations. But the Nazca and the Paracas before them were also master craftsmen, blankets, textiles, pottery, and in particular, geoglyphs massive drawings in the ground made by terraforming the terrain. Another notable achievement of the Nazca were what were called poquios, underground water wells and aqueducts. Of 36 identified, most of them are still functioning today and are actually used to bring water to the deserts of Peru. Understandably, this is a level of technological sophistication that one doesn't normally associate with pre-Columbian Amerindian civilizations, and that often this leads to genuinely very racist theories that these structures, quote, must have been built by someone else. As we'll explore in the theory section, the Nazca lines have been the subject of many lurid theories surrounding who really built them, and it's predicated on the idea that the Nazca couldn't have. But, as Reich and Cossack discovered, the Nazca, using tools that they had available to them, could very well have built the lines, including the complex mathematics involved. Now, the Nazca culture was very highly decentralized, overseen by hundreds of local chieftains who shared a common culture. They were also a highly religious and ceremonial people, practicing the strange and chthonic art of partial burial, bundling the remains of a deceased relative into a loose approximation of a human form, knees pulled into the chest, with heads often replaced with a jar that was then filled with soil from which trees and plants were grown. Spooky, huh? They were also mostly agricultural, and were known to partake in the San Pedro cactus's hallucinogenic properties, which would have been used primarily in religious ceremonies. From what we now know of the Nazca deities, they mostly seem to be animal and nature gods, with a big emphasis on fertility and growth, 
makes sense given that they live in the desert. Now back to the timeline. The Spanish catch wind of the lines around 1586, but think of them merely as ruins of roads. It wouldn't be until Peru developed civil and military aviation that people would realise the extent of the glyphs. This is probably because the Nazca civilization was long since gone. They disappeared around 750 AD, when El Nino environmental effects triggered an unexpected and catastrophic flooding, followed by serious soil erosion that made their previous homeland basically unlivable. Therefore, the people who would have known what to look for wouldn't be around to tell you. You can see the lines, some of them at least from the surrounding mountains, but if you don't know what you're looking for and you are assuming that the natives aren't capable of making them, you could easily ignore them or assume they're something more simple than they really are. Then, in 1927, Peruvian archaeologist Toribio Meija Jesepe decides to examine them more closely. His work is mostly involved in the aqueducts of the Nazca, so perhaps the lines are involved with the aqueducts. Then we get to 1939. Paul Kosok arrives in Peru. In 1940, he's taking a flight over the lines as part of his study of them, when he realises that one of them is shaped like a bird. Thorough analysis of the other lines showed that many of them depict animals, natural themes, or geometric shapes. With the help of the aforementioned Maria Reich and another American archaeologist, Richard P. Shadle, the trio then theorises that the lines could have been built and what they might have been used for. In particular, they realise that the lines match up with important locations for the summer and winter equinoxes, the longest and shortest days of the year respectively, so they speculate that the lines held a cosmological significance to the Nazca. And with the proliferation of relatively advanced astronomy throughout the Americas at the time, it was well attested and you can definitely see how they made those links. Carbon dated evidence shows that Nazca would have built the lines the way our trio described using wooden stakes and ropes to create lines to follow by scaling them up from pre-made drawings to a larger size. From there, it was just the digging that needed doing. Now, here we reach the damper in our story. When the little-known and fascinating Nazca lines became the subject of the theories of wackadoodles. Now, don't get me wrong, I enjoy my suspension of disbelief when it doesn't hurt anybody, but a lot of these theories are based in the assumption about what Nazca people could have been capable of, despite that we just showed that they were capable of it. Think about the idea that the pyramids of Egypt were built by aliens, because surely the Egyptians couldn't have built anything that complex. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like when we talked about Angkor Wat, how a lot of people assumed that the Romans must have built it because the Khmer were too simple to build such a complex city? So don't write off these ideas just as childish fantasy, there's often a subtext that, whether it's meant or not by the author, permeates the discourse and promotes the idea that people who came before European cultures were too simple to have built the complex structures that we find. That said, in 1968, Eric von Daniken publishes Chariots of the Gods, in which he proposed that the Nazca lines were built upon the instruction of ancient aliens, who he refers to as astronauts, who came to Earth and told the Nazca what to build and how to build it. This is real unfortunate, because it was this book, and a later follow-up book, Arrival of the Gods, that were to bring the Nazca lines into the popular culture consensus. Now, to be fair to him, von Daniken wasn't the first to push this idea. For example, in the late 1800s, people theorised that there were canals built on Mars by the Martians, when in reality they were just the remnants of uh, riverbeds long gone. But von Daniken pushed the idea very heavily, despite his theory being regarded by those with any academic rigour as being spurious pseudo-history. Again, he wasn't the first to suggest that aliens came to Earth and built things either. H.P. Lovecraft, seminal horror writer and infamous racist, wrote as much in his stories like At the Mountains of Madness. 
But I mainly have a bone to pick with Von Daniken because not only is his writing allegedly largely plagiarized and fairly sloppy, but again, whether he meant it or not, pushing the idea that non-Western people couldn't build great things reinforces a negative stereotype. He does cite Stonehenge as a Western example, but Stonehenge is a simple structure that was built quite a long time ago, relatively simple other than the distance it took to drag the stone to the site. If you compare it with the Nazca architecture, the Iron Pillar of Delhi, the Moai of Easter Island and the Great Pyramids, all of which were constructed at different times and in much greater complexity, these are what Von Daniken attributes to having been made by aliens. So what? Europeans could build things like Westminster Cathedral, but the Iron Pillar of Delhi is too far a step for any people who are simpler. Again, maybe he didn't mean it like that, but that definitely is a subtext that gets picked up on, and it could be a subconscious kind of thing. In response to this, however, Joe Nicol, famous skeptic, proved in 2004 with the team that you could easily replicate the Nazca lines using only tools available to the Nazca and with no aerial assistant. Here's the process that he used, and this is mostly going to be non-paraphrased, I took it verbatim from my research, because it's the easiest way to do it. So, most of the lines are formed on the ground in trenches between 10 and 15 centimeters deep, that's 4 to 6 inches roughly. They were made by removing the reddish-brown iron oxide coated pebbles that cover the surface of the Nazca Desert. When this was removed, the clay earth exposed in the bottom of the trench produces lines that contrast sharply in color and tone with the surrounding land. This sublayer contains high amounts of lime, which, with the morning mist, hardens to form a protective layer that shields the lines from winds, thereby preventing erosion. The Nazca drew several hundred simple but huge curvilinear animal and human figures using this technique. In total, the earthwork project is massive and very complex. The area encompassing the lines is nearly 450 kilometers squared, 176 miles squared, and the largest figures can span nearly 370 meters, 1200 feet. Some figures have been measured. The hummingbird is 93 meters long, the condor is 134, the monkey 93 by 58, and the spider is 47. The Nazca region, being extremely dry, windless, and having a consistent climate, has very well preserved the lines. It's one of the driest on Earth, in fact, and its temperature is kept around 25 degrees Celsius all year round. The lack of wind also helps keep the lines uncovered and visible. Research is ongoing as of 2011, to the present continuing, spearheaded by Japan's Yamagata University, with assistance from their IBM branch. Now, with the admittedly rough and patchy history of the Nazca lines sorted out, let's go into the theories. The first main explanation for them is that they were intended as a form of astrological calendar. Maybe it was a bit like we originally speculated Stonehenge to be, shapes made to align for some obscure purpose with star signs as they moved in their positions. We think this because certain points on some of the glyphs align with areas significant, as we mentioned before, during the solstices, the longest and shortest days of the year. This coupled with the fact that many indigenous religions to South America have a heavy focus on the sun and the moon as deities personified or objects of worship, I think makes it fairly likely. Now that being said, with the religious aspects we don't know or we'd like about the Nazca religion, we do know that it had a very heavy focus on fertility. This is to be expected of a people who put a lot of effort into making fertile a desert with apparently great success. So maybe the calendar usage was to measure crop growth. There's also lots of glyphs. 
and AI was able to locate a new one just the other day. If a few line up with the solstices, why would you build loads of other glyphs if you've already covered your bases, if that makes sense? It could just be that they weren't redundant at all, merely that they align with an astrological event that we would consider insignificant or unimportant, but held great importance to the Nazca, and that's going to be a lesson that recurs throughout this story, that sometimes something which seems a certain way to you might look differently to someone else. Another early speculation was that there was supposed to be some form of irrigation channel. This lines up with the deep wells and absolutely enormous effort taken by the Nazca to irrigate the desert. But then why make them into shapes? Aesthetically pleasing, sure, but perhaps inefficient for farming. Maria Reich, the heroine archaeologist, suggested that they were all or in part representations of constellations. Her protege, Phyllis Pitluger, suggested they were in fact representations of what she called counter-constellations, the negative space between stars rather than a connecting of the dots of them. Alberto Russell Castro, an historian, proposed a multifaceted explanation that some were meant as irrigation channels or field divisions, some were meant to mark Nazca barrier on ceremonial sites, and some were related to cosmological predictions. John Reinhardt, an explorer and archaeologist, theorizes that they're meant as paths to places of worship, specifically for Nazca gods of mountains and waters. They're stylistically shaped like figures that would be important to Nazca mythology. Now, one rather strange theory comes from Henry Stierlin, a Swiss art historian, he believes that since the Paracas culture, that came before the Nazca culture, practiced a form of mummification, the lines were used as a giant loom in aid of producing extremely long and extremely wide pieces of cloth used in mummification. He makes this link based on some of his own research, predominantly the geometric patterns common to both Paracas mummy cloth and Nazca lines. But others have suggested the conclusion might be better drawn from the evidence that the similar shapes are merely the evidence of a connection between a precursor and a successor culture, rather than that the lines were used as some sort of giant loom. Nicola Massini and Giuseppe Orofici, two Italian archaeologists, built on Castro's earlier idea of multifaceted groups based on research conducted at the Nazca ceremonial site of Cahuachi. Both sites have glyphs, albeit of massively different scales, that can be categorised meandering motifs for ceremonial glyphs, radial centers and axes for those that were meant to be aligned with the solstices for calendrical purposes, as well as a couple of other groupings. One American explorer, Jim Woodman, theorized that the Nazca needed to have aerial reconnaissance to build the lines, even though we already know that they didn't. Thus, he constructed a hot air balloon that could have been made with materials available to the Nazca. And it flew. Sort of. After much effort, and it's not at all attested in the archaeology that we have, nor written in any history, writing, or oral history. Just because the Nazca could have built a hot air balloon doesn't mean that they did, nor that they needed them. Now we get to the ancient aliens theory. Does it have anything going for it? Only if you believe in aliens. Theories like this are much of a muchness. For example, the idea that an angel could swoop down from heaven and save you from a car crash is predicated on the basis that you believe in angels. If you don't believe in angels, there is an alternate explanation. If you do believe in angels, there isn't. So this theory is entirely based on whether you think aliens exist, effectively. Thus, the dots connected with this theory, the connections supposedly to other sites around the world, the lack of Nazca capability, they only really line up and make a picture if you think that aliens could and would and did help the Nazca. But for me, this is one of those theories that raises way more questions than it answers, and it answers none of them. Which aliens? 
Why did they help the Nazca make the lines? Why haven't we seen them since? What did they want? Where did they come from? Where did they go? At first, von Daniken believed that they were made by the aliens, again also referred to in his work as astronauts. Then, however, after considering that the Nazca could have built them, he said they were built by the Nazca for the aliens, as runways for their space vehicles. Now, I think you already know my thoughts on this. I like to suspend my disbelief fantastical theories that have some evidence to their name, but this is sci-fi hokum. In this case, and in a lot of other cases not so accidentally, it relegates other cultures to a less civilized status and attributes the things that they produced through great ingenuity and effort of their own to aliens or astronauts because we don't believe that they could have done it. What do I think? I like the three-pronged approach, mostly because it covers bases. I like bases being covered. Some may have been used for agriculture, some for calendrical purposes, some for ceremonial purposes. I definitely think that a calendar connection is likely. My main issue with it is that it seems weird to make the agricultural ones as styled as they were, despite the fact that they conform to the needs of their purpose. Especially since the true aesthetic value needs to be obtained from a high vantage point, the surrounding mountains at least. Important to remember that the pre-Columbian Americans didn't have horses, so the fastest speed you could travel was walking, or running in the case of Inca message runners, so climbing a mountain for the aesthetics of a field demarcation line was not something that could be conveniently done. Doesn't stop it from being the case, just something to consider. I do like that the other sites had glyphs, albeit smaller than the Nazca lines, and it helps bolster the theory that they could be classified into different thematic groupings with different motifs for different purposes. I think that lines up very neatly with a common human trait to categorize things. I would also just like to say for the record, by the way, that I think on balance, aliens do exist. Alien life is all but a certainty. I just don't think that they visited Earth during the nascence of humanity and built all of our greatest early monuments to them. I suppose if there's any lesson to be learned from the mystery of the Nazca Lines, it's that sometimes a little perspective is what you need. I know, that's very cheesy, but think about it. Those lines held a significance to the Nazca that we're just today beginning to understand, and we didn't even realise it until we took a big step back and saw them from the air. We could have seen their true nature from the mountains, if only we'd been looking at what was there. So if you're looking at that optical illusion and you see the duck, try flipping the picture and finding the rabbit, because you might enjoy that perspective more than you expected to. This has been Demystified with Ashley Stars. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Stars, with hosting help from Wizard Studios. Music by ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com 